Okay, today is November the 17th, 2011. We will not have Bible class next Thursday night. I believe we're all going to be too full of turkey to really... (laughs) Full of something. Maybe turkey. Anyhow, we won't have Bible class uh, next Thursday. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness and for Your Word. We're so thankful that You straighten everything out, that Your Word doesn't change, and You've given us the Great system of perception whereby we can understand the whole realm of doctrine. So we pray that you will help us to focus, that we will take the things we learned this evening and put it into our long-term memory so that we can use it whenever we have the opportunity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in James chapter 2. And to test your memory a little bit this evening, um, Do you remember the first key in understanding James chapter 2, especially uh, starting with verse 14? We haven't got past verse 14 yet, but we have set it up with some of the verses in James chapter 1, which initially focuses on the word being implanted into us, which is the command, and then the outworking of that, which is application. So uh, James is dealing with carnal believers who had been taught doctrine, but they weren't applying doctrine. And then in verses 1 through 13 in chapter 2, they have these foibles, these uh, different types of sins that they were committing. And so he's trying to get their attention. Now, do you remember what the first first major key in understanding James uh, James chapter 2 is? Just think about it. Don't raise your hand. Just... See if you can formulate it in your own mind. A major key in understanding, correctly interpreting James chapter 2 is that James is talking to believers, which a lot of people don't understand or they don't realize, but that does make a difference. The second major key in understanding this portion of Scripture, starting with James 2.14, is that James and Paul are not speaking about the same thing. And here's, I'm going to add this to this second major key. It's either in addition to the second major key or you can put it a third major key. I don't even have it in the notes. I just want you to understand this. The whole ball game is to understand that what James is talking about in verses 14 through 26 is not salvific. The issue has nothing whatsoever to do with eternal salvation. That's where the ball game is either won or lost. Those who would misinterpret these verses and allege that you have to have works on top of your faith in order to be eternally saved have to argue that point. And there lies their weakness. But unequivocally, undoubtedly, James is talking to carnal believers and he's warning them. They have something 
that they need to be saved from. But it is not the fires of hell. And anyone that would take this and distort it and try to allege that this is referring to eternal salvation have stuck their neck out and you can chop it off if you know how. Uh, I, I, maybe that's not, uh, that's not our... <laughs> that wasn't really worded as well as I would like, but it does illustrate the point. <laughs> we want to take that false idea and chop it off. And when they stretch that neck out and try to allege that this is salvific, then we can go to work. That's what we want to remember. Uh, what we didn't have last time that I'm going to show this time, if it's going to come up, is the difference. When I say that they're talking about two different things, we're talking about actually antithetical things. Aha. Uh -huh. We're going to have it tonight. There it is. Justification. What most people don't understand is that, there is that there's two types of justification. Paul is talking about one. James is talking about another. Not the same. Two different things. On Paul's side, we were talking about a justification that takes place at salvation when we believe. James is talking about a justification that comes after salvation. And they are not the same. At salvation, we need to be saved from the lake of fire by faith alone in Christ alone. Afterwards, we have to be saved, not from hell, but from the wrath of God that comes in the form of divine discipline even unto the sin unto death, which is a premature death. Justification of Paul is positional. Justification by James is experiential. Do you all feel qualified? Do you feel comfortable to talk to someone who may have never heard these terms? Do you feel that you are competent to explain to someone like that the difference between positional and experiential in your own words? This is necessary for you to be able to do because apart from that, they won't get it. Because their mind defaults automatically to positional. As far as most people are concerned, everything in the Bible is positional. Meaning our standing before God and what is at stake is our eternal destiny, whether we're going to be with God or whether we're going to be in the lake of fire. That's the only thing that they understand. And as we have recognized, the New Testament has really little to say about that. It does cover it. But the great majority of the information in the New Testament is directed towards believers for them to understand that they are accountable to God after salvation to grow in grace and knowledge. And most people don't understand the gravity of that statement. When I say he holds us accountable, he takes your attitude towards him and his word extremely seriously. And if you don't believe it, just start ignoring him and see what happens. I don't mean that to be a dare. I'm just saying that those who do not obey the command in 
2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God. And you know the rest. Why do, why do we need to study? I don't have to go to church. I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore. There's no difference in my life. Everything is still fine. Yeah, right. Just keep that attitude and see what happens. So you have to be able to, to, to explain to something that happens in a moment of time that is eternal and something that takes place over a long period of time that is essentially temporary. Justification of Paul's type takes but a moment. However long it takes for you to accept the gospel, that's how long. But James is talking about a justification that takes a lifetime. Some people get with doctrine right before they check out. Some start learning when they're very young. And it's those that have the more danger. Because the longer you live, the more you experience life, the more that you think that you've got things covered on your own, the more that you think that you've learned all there is to know, and you really don't need to waste your time and go and hear things repeated, to that extent, you are in peril. And the distractions will come and the tendency is over a period of time, you're going to latch on to a distraction somewhere. And then you're going to learn what James is talking about. Paul is talking about being justified before God. James is talking about being justified before, really, man and God. I think in James... He's talking about both. A lot of people just think about being justified before God, that we need to produce good works from the filling of the Holy Spirit, have motivation and momentum in our spiritual life to do all these things before God. But James is also talking about our standing before man. Because if you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ and you live like an unbeliever, if a person who doesn't know Christ on the outside is watching you, he's going to see you as a hypocrite, and you're not going to have any standing with regards to witnessing to that type of person. So we need to be justified in their eyes also, and they can't see our faith. The faith that we had at salvation, they can't see it. And that's not even the kind of faith that James is talking about anyway. So the only thing they can see is our what? Our works. And we are going to be either justified or condemned before man by our works. And this is what James is talking about. We're justified before God by faith alone. Here lies the battle. You do not retreat from that hill ever. James is talking about being justified before God and man by faith plus works. Takes both. Paul's type of justification is for all believers. Every believer is justified before God the moment that he places his trust, his faith in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. 
Every person who does that is born again, becomes a believer, and no one is excluded. James, however, the, the justification that he is talking about actually happens for only some believers. Unfortunately, it's a few believers. Just think how many believers are out there that have opportunity to have access to accurate teaching. And they're pretty well without excuse these days because of the Internet, because of radio and different uh, media. They could be absorbing this kind of information so they can be on the front lines and God can use them. And they can look forward to being decorated and rewarded someday. But no, the TV shows are more important. Uh, this, that, or the other thing is more important. And so it's only those few who understand what life is really about, who have a personal sense of eternal destiny, are the ones that are going to be justified before God and man, which is what James is talking about. Paul's justification that he refers to cannot be lost. I'll ask you all, I ask this so many times. Don't say it, just see if you know the answer. One reason that our justification cannot be lost is because something happens at the moment of salvation that puts us permanently in union with Christ. It's a specific event. You know what it is? Don't say it. Some of you do. Extremely important. You could ask 95% of Christians and they don't have a clue what it's about. And I'm talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Extremely important. Never happened in the Old Testament. Just for a royal family of the church age. And because of that, because you have imputed eternal life and imputed righteousness which are irrevocable, the gifts and the calling of God is, irrevo is irrevocable. And James said that also. And eternal life is what? A gift from God. However, James's justification can be lost. All you have to do is be tainted with a bit of arrogance and you start spiraling out of control right down. Just like I, I think of these, these airplanes that, that lose power and they start spiraling down. That's what arrogance will do to your spiritual life. It can be lost. Here's the good news. It can be regained. But it's not a done deal. Depends on your volition. Paul's justification is not rewardable. Some, that, see, that's where a lot of people get mixed up. They think, well, I've got to have enough faith at salvation to carry me. And if I have enough faith at salvation, it's real, and then eventually I'll get rewarded. No. You know, just think about it. Why is justification that Paul is referring to, why does it include zero reward? Just think about it a minute. I don't want to answer. Just think. Because what you do to be justified has zero merit. 
And that's another illustration of God's grace at salvation. Why would he reward us when he does everything? And he has done everything. All we do is receive the gift by believing. And faith is non-meritorious. So it would not be righteous and just for him to reward that. However, after salvation, on what the, the justification that James is talking about, is rewardable because now you're talking about something that is required of you. Effort on your part. Dedication, resolve, loyalty. All these works is what we're talking about. And so those that exert themselves and obey to be a good and faithful servant, then they're going to be rewarded. So those are some of the differences between Paul's justification, not his, it's our justification, but that Paul is referring to and what James is is referring to. Now, if you take the blue and the green over here and you try to mesh them and have them harmonized as if it's the same thing, what happens? It's like trying to mix oil and water. It's just not going to happen. So you can't merge these and say, well, it's kind of, it's a combination of both. It's not a combination of both. It's two complete separate justifications. They are not even talking remotely about the same thing. You have to have this settled in your own soul in order to win the battle of someone's soul who thinks that faith without works is dead. Can can, can, Can faith without works save you? And when they make it salvific, you have got to demonstrate that it's not salvific. If it is, then we need to just rip out all those verses that we know about faith alone. So that gives us an edge, though. The edge that I was referring to is since they can only see it one way. I have been so impressed of late about the presuppositions that people bring to the Bible or anything else. They see a word, and in their mind, it means one thing. And they can't see it any other way. Well, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll just go on with my notes because I'm going to cover this in a little bit. But we we have to be able to uh, dispose of those presuppositions and slow down and see what, it's, what the Bible is talking about there. So we, we talked about the fact that believers do need to be delivered. Believers do need salvation, if you will. I hesitate to use that word because people default to a salvific type of salvation every time that word is mentioned. But we do need to be delivered. And it's a clarion call that Paul and James, everybody is is crying out, hey, you're saved, you've got eternal life, but there's something required of you. God requires that you be obedient and be a good and faithful servant. And you cannot be obedient or a good and faithful servant and be ignorant of God's Word. Can't do it. Because he commands us in too many places to stand for the truth, study to show thyself approved. So many different ways he's telling us, grow up. This is your purpose. This is why I left you on planet Earth. And if you squander the time, you're going to feel the sting of my paddle. 
That's what the New Testament is trying to get across. Okay, we're going to start again with James 2.14. Here is James 2.14. This is where the battle starts. This is where they like to, to try to refute faith alone. What use is it, my brother, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, what I want you to understand right away, if you are trying to argue that this is salvific and you still believe in faith alone, you're going to lose. Because, it's not talk because it says it's very clear that if you say you have faith but no works, can the faith... And it's what it's really saying there, can faith alone save a person? And the answer is yes, if you're talking about eternal salvation. And the answer is no, if you're talking about physical deliverance. And this is talking about physical deliverance. So let's look at the words. There's some of the words that are key here. Faith. Faith is pistis. It's got three meanings. That which evokes trust and faith. Two, state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted, that we trust, confidence, or faith. And that which is believed, which is the body of faith, the teaching. Now, what do we have? Let's illustrate. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith. That clearly is number two, isn't it? That's putting your trust and confidence on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Do you all agree that that's so? However, 1 Timothy 4.1, But the Spirit expressly says, In latter times some will fall away from the faith. What is it there? It's clearly number three, isn't it? Talking about the body of faith. These are the ways that the words are used. And this is from BDAG, which is the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. So what does faith have in James 2.14? Well, and we consider these. I'm just going to run through. We considered verses 21 and 22 to answer that question because we found in the first chapter they were to learn the word implanted. 22, the next verse, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, which is application. So it's setting up verse 14 from chapter 1. He was the, the context and the content was about receiving the word and applying the word. Then verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2, it talks about their foibles. Now let's look at the facts that will help us determine for sure that faith there is not talking about the faith that happens at salvation, eternal salvation, but it's talking about the body of knowledge that a, that a believer acquires. First of all, James was addressing believers too. He had learned doctrine, but they, were, they had learned doctrine, but were failing to apply it. Three, they focus was on their behavior, not their eternal destiny. The entire book of James is about the behavior of believers, not their eternal destiny. There might be one verse in the whole book. Therefore, faith in verse 14, oh, number four, eternal salvation was not mentioned because it wasn't an issue. Therefore, faith in verse 14 must refer to the body of teaching they received but were ignoring and not the faith that 
they exerted when they believed in the gospel. Y'all got that? Well, that's important. It's not talking about the faith that you exert at salvation, eternal salvation, but the body of truth. Okay. That's important. Now, what about saved? Can that, can that faith without work save you? Well, the word there is sozo, S-O-Z-O, and it's an aorist active infinitive. In a point of time, active voice, you must produce it. It means to preserve or rescue from natural dangers and afflictions, save, keep from harm, preserve, or rescue. Here are the subpoints under that number one. It means to save from death. It, B, it means to bring out safely from a situation fraught with mortal danger. C, save from disease. And D, keep, preserve, in good condition. That's the first meaning. The second meaning is to save or preserve from trans transcendent danger or destruction, to save, preserve from eternal death, from judgment. That comes from the same uh, lexicon. Now, we got which one do you think meets the criteria in that verse? Because it used the word sozo. Sozo is usually... Is used, excuse me, used salvifically, that means saved from hell, only 44 times of the 110 times it's used, that is in the New Testament. About 60% of the time it is used in the sense of delivering someone from physical danger. That would be meaning number one that we just looked at. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm explaining this is because you were probably the same way. I was the same way. When I saw saved in the Bible, <laughs> it only had one meaning to me. That's talking about saved from hell, period. Until someone pointed out that uh, women who have, are bear children uh, will be saved. Well, I'm not a woman. I don't have children, so does that mean that's salvific? Then all males are going to hell, aren't they? Most people see the word save and have an instant printout in their brain that says saved from hell. So what does save mean in James 2.14? Does it mean be saved from the fires of hell or be delivered from physical harm or danger? Is it number one or number two? Number one is physical danger. Number two is eternal salvation. If you look at the same five facts given to determine what faith meant in this verse, they're also useful to determine what save means. Remember these five right here? Where were they? Right there? All of those are pertinent to the word save as well, just like it was for faith. Y'all see that? All those facts help us determine what saved means there. A person who insists that it refers to being saved from hell is saying that one must add works to his faith in Christ to be eternally saved. you understand that? If this saved is salvific, then it is making the claim that in order to be saved from hell, you have to have faith in Christ plus works. But then they have a problem, don't they? This is where we're going to demonstrate to them. Remember, we're going to ask them if they, someone says that they believe that you've got to have works well. By the way, 
what would you tell a person? What first thing should pop into your mind, anybody you're talking to, and they say that you have to have works uh, to add to your faith to be saved. Or sometimes they'll just say you've got to work your way to heaven. First thing that should pop into your mind is, okay, I'm going to ask them, why did Christ have to go to the cross then? If we have to work anyway, why did he go to the cross? And then you wait for an answer. And there's some others. But anyway, uh, they have a problem. The natural reading of this verse, which harmonizes with the rest of Scripture, would have saved, meaning to be delivered from divine discipline from God and scorn and ridicule from man. This agrees with what James himself says in chapter 5. We'll get to that chapter 5 in a moment. Um, however, if they're saying that it, it, it means that you have to have works on top of the faith, um, what are they going to do with Ephesians 2.8.9? It is salvation. It, salvation is not of works. Galatians 2.16. A man is not justified by the works of the law. Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life. Romans 4.5, the one who does not work but believes. John 3.26, he who believes on the Son has eternal life. Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. They have got a major obstacle, do they not? And this is your job to point this out. If, if they are trying to make the case that it is salvific, then we need, to, we need to be very confused. I don't understand. You're saying that we've got to have works in these verses. But you got to have... <laughs> oh, I know, it's a good verse, yeah. Well, John 16 would be good. You know, have you understood that? The reason I ignore it, because everybody knows it. It's all else that is your, your backup ammunition instead of your first one. Next verse, which harmonizes with meaning, is delivered from divine discipline, ridicule of man, and so forth. Now, I, I was talking about the same book, same what James has said. Now, we are asserting that James is taught an exception that has nothing to do with the salvation. These, he's talking about being under the, This is what he says in James 5, 19. Saying, my brethren. No, he's talking to believers. The first truth essentially is faith to hydrogen. And one, that would be one of you, turns back, turns him back. That means when believe raised, he's not applying doctrine, turns him back, and he helps him recover. Then verse 20, he who turns a sinner, and who is the sinner? A believer. Turns a sinner from the error of a sozo. Same word. We'll say him from death. Result that this person turned away. And the result that, I'm going to leave that on the cabinet. Fails to an one that he turns a sinner. Same word is so high. Everything from Jesus in Gozo in saying, and where he's James in Proverbs 12:15 says, "Listen to this: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel." Isn't that great? What is that talking about? It's talking about humility, isn't it? There are a lot of people that are so taken, they are so proud of what they know that they won't listen to anybody. Ever come across one like that? That's, what, that's the kind of person that Proverbs is referring to. 
Listen again, Proverbs 12, 15. Did you write it in your Bible? Okay. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He makes up his own game plan. He makes up his own rules. He, set, he sets his own path. He's not listening to everybody. It's right as far as he's concerned in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Listening to counsel is a manifestation of humility. That's why I had it here. So in humility, receive the word implanted. In fact, that's the only way you can receive the word is in humility. The word implanted is from thuo, P-H-U-O. I used to say phooey. That's kind of phooey. Well, this is thuo. And it means to germinate or grow. So, to be in, does something germinate and grow like that? It takes time, doesn't it? And so that's important because how long does it take to believe in Christ? Just it's it's, it's an aorist tense. It's at a point of time. Uh, but we're going to rec- uh, see that um, this is over a period of time. So receive the word implanted from. Uh, uh, which is able, and the word able is dunamai, comes from dunamis, means, and this is a participle, and it's a present middle participle. You see the present tense to germinate, do you see the time factor in here is linear? It's not punctiliar. And it's the middle voice means you're, it's to your advantage. You're going to be benefited uh, if you receive this implanted word. And then it, is, it says, which is able to save, which is the same word, sozo, your souls, which means lives. I'll get to souls in just a moment. You see, you can't apply the word if you haven't received, meaning learned it. Receiving this verse is the aorist middle imperative. We are commanded to receive the word. Middle voice means, again, it benefits you. You are benefit, you're benefited by your own action when you receive the word. It's a participle. It doesn't have any mood to it. God was ca- uh, commanding believers to learn Bible doctrine so they could apply it. If they failed to do so, they would be in danger of a premature death. This would, be, this would have been taken, been taken as a warning that they could lose their physical life, but not their eternal life. You got that? To allege that one must continue to take in the Word in order to be eternally saved is contrary to grace and to a multitude of Scriptures. You understand that? Now, some people have the word uh, problem with the word soul. Save a soul is one of those knee-jerk, things that takes place in most people's mind. And to save a soul means what? You save them to go to heaven. They're eternally saved when you use the term to save a soul. That's not the way the the receivers of this letter would take it. Soul in the Greek is suche, P-S-U-C-H-E. Here is again from that same lexicon definition. Number one, life on earth in its animating aspect, making bodily function possible. 
The condition of being alive, earthly, life. Number two, the seat and center of the inner human life in its many and varied aspects. So, the seat and center of life that transcends the earthly. And three, an entity with personhood or, or excuse me, personhood or person. Those are the three. Now, which one, when it's talking about save the soul, is this referring to? The idea of a person having their life cut short for disobeying or defying God is not new or just applicable to the New Testament. Look at some of these verses. Now, what I'm showing you, this idea that it's not talking about losing your soul when you're going to hell, the, the idea, the principle of getting off course and God cutting your life short is not only in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament as well. Here's a few verses. Proverbs 21:16, A man who wanders from the way of understanding, which would be perception and application of God's Word, will rest in the assembly of the dead. Proverbs 10:27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 13:20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. Now, that ought to be a pretty distinguishing factor when you choose your friends. Ezekiel 18.26 When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. So we got that principle set. Most believers do not understand or appreciate the dreadful punishment that is administered to believers who don't take their spiritual life seriously. They are very mistaken to think that they can ignore God and His Word without consequences. The entire New Testament carries out, uh, uh, cries out chapter after chapter warning believers of the cost of arrogance, ignorance, and negative volition, and those three go together. And those who are not motivated to take in the Word, to grow in grace, to obey the commands, to be a good servant, are ignorant, they're arrogant, and they have negative volition. And they can sing, Oh, how I love Jesus till the cows come home, and it's not going to defer God's chastisement upon them. So are you all ready for the proper understanding with James 2.14? Turn to it. Make sure you're there because you need to make these expanded notes in there. This is a, an expanded translation. What use is it, my brethren, if, he, if a man says he has faith, that is, has acquired biblical truth, but has no works. He doesn't apply what he knows. Can that faith, biblical truth, without application, save or deliver him from divine discipline? That is the question. That's the context, the words, faith and saved, absolutely cry out. It demands in context that this is what it means and the rest of Scripture as well. And 
The answer to this question is a resounding no. It cannot. If you try to argue because you believe it's faith alone and Christ alone, and this is salvific, you will lose. And whoever is trying to explain to you that faith alone and Christ alone is not enough, you have to have, you have, to have works as well in order to be saved. And when they ask the question, do you believe what's the answer? You would say, absolutely not. They're going, to be conf- they're going to be confused. What they don't know is that you're talking about James' justification and not Paul's. They don't even know there's a difference. The Bible doctrine a believer has learned but not applied will not deliver him from divine discipline. To imply that this verse substantiates the idea that faith alone in Christ is not enough to be eternally saved is... Is a where, where am I? Did I go further? I think I can't find gross. Okay, is a gross misinterpretation and is heresy. Now that's pretty strong. It is completely foreign to the context of not only chapter two but the entire book of James. Whether they applied the doctrine they had that they had learned had absolutely nothing to do with their eternal destiny, which was settled once and for all when they accepted the gospel. The only way to reconcile this verse with the rest of Scripture is to re- recognize it is not salvific. Can't, cannot be. If it's salvific, take your Bibles and throw them in the trash. That's how strong you have to be. Because God has contradicted himself. Now, however, this does not mean that we are to minimize the consequences of learning and applying God's word. Consider the following. And I, I'm saying is not taking in the word is not going to make you lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that you are never saved to begin with. It has nothing to do with the fact that you will never darken the door of hell. However, I don't want to minimize the consequences. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 27. For if we... Won't you go there? We. You need to underline that we. A lot of people try to make this salvific. It is not salvific. Hebrews 10. Most of the time, that's what people do when they misinterpret and misunderstand verses. They try to make a verse that is talking about experiential things and try to make it positional. This is not positional, it's experiential. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we, and the writer of Hebrews, I would assume, I'm sure you would too, that he's a believer. And he's including himself in this. For if we go on sinning willfully. <laughs> That's a newsflash to some people. A lot of people are going to look at your behavior and try to determine if you're Really a believer or not? And you, there's no way you can go on willfully sinning. Well, they need to read this verse, don't they? For if we, believers, go on sinning willfully, that means you know it's a sin, you're going to do it anyway. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So if you know that something is a sin and you just choose, well, I'm going to do it anyway. 
There's not a sacrifice that is going to remove that, that condemnation on you. Or maybe I should say discipline on you would be a better word. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. This, who is this referring to? Believers. Carnal believers. Believers who don't get it. They don't care about God and His Word. They'll give a little, a little nod to God here and there. They'll just toss Him a bone every once in a while. What can they expect? A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversary. You see, the people see fire here. Oh, fire! Oh, that's got to mean hell. Well, a believer might think it's hell when it comes upon him. You see, fire in the Bible represents judgment. They can expect a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Who are the adversaries? Believers are contrary and anti-Christ. That's who this is talking about. The ones who refuse to grow up. They want to go and have their ears tickled. They want to go and have an experience, uh, emotional experience. They want to do everything but do what you're doing and sit down and learn the Word of God. And that, that's what's going to change your life. That's what's going to make you a good and faithful servant. That's what's going to make you prepared to stand on the front lines and sort all this nonsense out that people have spread everywhere. Hebrews 10.38. Look at this. A few verses more later. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Oh, well, that's too bad, isn't it? He's not going to have pleasure in me. That's litotes. Remember the figure of speech? What he's, when they say he is presenting a negative, like he's not, he's not going to have pleasure in you, what this really means, it's kind of like an idiomatic expression, he is going to rip the flesh off of you. He is going to put you in such turmoil, you're going to be in the middle of a, of a hurricane and not know which end is up. You will wail and you will weep. You, wish that, you will wish that the Apaches had got a hold of you. That's what that's talking about. Turn to, are y'all in Hebrews 10? Go to verse 38. And where it says, the one that shrinks back, this is the one that doesn't endure, the one that thinks, oh, I've got it covered, I've got all the doctrine I need, I'm fine. He says, that's the one my soul has no pleasure in him, and that means like in Hebrews 12, every son that he receiveth, he skins alive with a whip. That's what in Hebrews 12, a couple of chapters later, he says. These are believers. Believers. Yes. Uh, let's see. But my righteous shall live by faith. Yeah, okay, what kind of, what is that? Is the, I'm glad you brought that up. Y'all see that faith in verse 38? Is, is that in any remote way referring to the faith that one has at salvation? But this is what, see, if you, here, if I'm a legalist and I don't understand grace, this is my, this is my argument here. But if my righteous ones, this is a person 
who says they are righteous, they are believers, uh, my righteous ones will live by faith. They'll live by the faith that they had at salvation, and this is what's going to carry them. And if they don't do that, you know what a Calvinist will say? He really didn't believe to begin with. He didn't have enough faith. He didn't have the right kind of faith. He had a heart belief. He didn't have a uh, he had a head belief. He didn't have a heart belief. And all this kind of nonsense. This is talking about the body of truth. The same type. You got that? And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Litotes is the name for a figure of speech. And it's using a negative to accentuate a positive. I like to, I always remember this. It just comes in my head. For some reason I can remember this. If a person, let's say you're a teenager and you went to see Elvis for the first time at a concert. And he just blew you away. And you came home and your, and your mother said, well, uh, what did you think of Elvis? And you said, oh, he's not bad. What do you really mean? He was fabulous. That is litotes. And that's what's used here. Okay, that's it for tonight. Uh, got something to chew on there. Um, pardon? Shrinks back means that he gets distracted. He no longer has spiritual momentum going forward. Yeah, out of fellowship. He's, he's, he's a carnal believer that is either already gotten into reversionism or is on his way. Uh, he's got more important things to do than to be concerned with the matters of God. All that is, is shrinking back. And there are people in every church that need to hear this. The problem is they're shrinking back and they're not here to hear it. That's on God's plate. That's not ours. But I don't know about you, but this makes me quiver to think that God is that serious about us continuing to obey His commands. Not just to do good, but to grow, to learn something. I, I think God has embarrassed so many believers. Jehovah's Witnesses come by and they try to tell them about believing in Jesus Christ and they say, well, faith without works is dead and they're shot down. They're shut down. They don't know what else to say. They don't know what to do now. You don't have an excuse. But you have to meditate upon these things. You have to remember them. You have to remember those keys. James chapter 2 is talking to believers. James and Paul are not talking about the same thing. The whole issue is that this is not positional. It's experiential. It's not talking at all about heaven or hell. It's talking about a behavior that needs to be turned around. Okay, we'll continue next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus on these things. We pray that you will metabolize this doctrine in our souls, that you will put it in long-term memory so that when we are on the front lines and we're talking to someone who has believed Satan's lies that do not understand your grace and are trying to work their way to be accepted by you, that we will be able to bring these things forth and let your word speak for itself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.